Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review with me, Adam Bolt, with the one and only Dave O'Brien. Wow. Wow. Cha-cha. Wowie. Uh, We'll come to that later, Dave. We'll come on to that later. Uh, Chris Hennig is also here, back in the United Kingdom. Chris, good to have you back on these shores. Good to be back. Lawrence McKenna, unfortunately, is on a train, so he cannot join us as we record this podcast. But never fear, he will be back on Thursday. Today, though, we are talking all the Premier League action, including Arsenal Man City, the Merseyside derby, and a certain David Moyes. Uh, we'll also be talking Serie A, Bundesliga, Celtic, as well as revealing the winner of our Player of the Week poll, as always, on a Monday. <gasps> Let's get started, though, Dave, shall we? With... Arsenal, Manchester City, billed as the biggest game of the weekend. Uh, two all, it finished at the Emirates. Uh, an interesting game. City started the more dangerous side, potentially, in an open game, Dave. Uh, Sané scoring after just five minutes. But they took their foot off the gas after that, didn't they? I think it was uh, you know, a combination of them taking their foot off the gas and, in a way, Pep Guardiola making a few... Uh, you know, wrong decisions in a way. I wasn't too keen on the Yaya Torre substitution. I felt, yeah, City definitely needed to shore that sort of space up. But taking off Sterling, who was a, a threatening player against Arsenal, they couldn't really deal with Sane or Sterling in that first half, especially Sane, who had another wonderful display. You know, was, he made the impact in the, the home leg when Man City played at the Emirates against Arsenal, changed the game, came off. City won two one, and it just felt like a strange one that City's width was what was you know what was going so well for them. They were getting in behind the Arsenal fullbacks. De Bruyne kept on finding the likes of Sterling and um, Sane in behind, and taking Sterling off, putting De Bruyne out wide. For me, it just didn't make any sense. And unfortunately, it put Arsenal back into the driving seat and control of the game. Yeah, it was a strange one, wasn't it? Because Koscielny uh, coming off at half time, uh, a lot of fans expecting a cricket score in that second half. Yeah, it was Arsenal who came out with the momentum. They scored that goal. Mustafi, eight minutes after the break, heading home the leveller. Uh, after four defeats in their previous five league games, Chris, I mean, uh, do we give Arsenal some credit from fighting back? It was billed as a must-win game for Wenger, with a draw meaning they're now seven points adrift to the top four still. Perhaps if the situation or the... This is where context to me is so important, because... I think if it was, let's say, a new manager at the helm or, or someone in their debut season, you might take that away from it. Right now, everything that can be spun to a negative, I think, is being spun to a negative for, for Arsenal fans, which is 
you know, look, they're, they're clearly frustrated. So I'm, I'm not going to tell them how to support their club. Um, the game overall, to me, I, th- I think, again, it's it's that thing of where you deconstruct the entire game and not just the, the final score. The fact they equalise and then concede practically uh, seconds later points to, to maybe that theory of, of a weak mentality or at least uh, a soft touch when it comes to to important moments. I mean, you speak of the, the fans there. There were, I say, unfortunate scenes inside and outside the stadium. There were fights breaking out. Uh, some even trying to attack Robbie and Arsenal fan TV, trying to stop them filming, essentially, after the game. Sad to see stupid behaviour, I'd say, Chris, from the fans. Of, of course it is. I mean, look, there's, there's passion and then there's just stupidity. And I think, without question, in in that instance, that's when it... Uh, it Broaches into the the latter. It's. I'm just not sure what it's trying to achieve. That's the thing. It, the thing with football is there are so many opinions, and I don't think a, a football fan base ever agrees with an entire unity. Um, so yeah, there are clearly those people who still support Wenger. I think also though there are those people who support a new coach coming in but don't appreciate Arsenal fan TV. Because I think that's that's the other thing, is that it can't be seen as an embarrassment because it's it's something that the wider football community laughs at. Um, that's one of the things I've found quite uh, interesting about Robbie's whole um, debate with, with Gary Neville, is he, he was so desperate for respect. But really, I think if he was honest with himself, he would know that there is a huge portion of the football community that does not respect Arsenal fan TV um, in the slightest. So it's it's a it's an interesting sort of situation because of its complexity. And really, it's it's all about how the individual perceives it. And I think Robbie maybe is either naive to it, maybe uh, ignorant to it. I'm not too sure. But I think, again, he would, would have to admit, I think, if you asked him, that not everyone sees the benefit of Arsenal fan TV. A good number of people just watch it because it's, uh, you know, it's it's a laughable thing to, to take in. Mm. I mean, for sure, obviously, uh, Arsenal fan TV reflects the frustrations of some fans. You see how divided the Arsenal fan base is, Dave, with people trying to stop Robbie filming. How much of this, I don't want to blame Arsene Wenger necessarily, but it all does seem to stem at this current time. You know, this this is almost unprecedented for Arsenal. We talk about how it's the same thing every season for Arsenal. It seems to have reached an idea now where the uncertainty over his future as manager seems to be fueling some of this uh, some of this conflict. Essentially, do you not think it's time for him now to make a decision or at least announce his decision one way or another to sort of put an end to that? I don't think he needs to. You know what I mean? Like, hasn't he earned the right to make a decision when he wants to make a decision? He's been at Arsenal for X amount of time. He's, you know, been in the Champions League nineteen seasons. Has made the decision according to some of the comments he's made this week. He seems to be hinting that you know he will be staying on for another season, but he seems to be waiting for the right time to make that announcement. I.e., when they've had a good result. Yeah. Whereas surely there, it shouldn't really really be about that in terms of the the wider context and you know even the greater good of the club. He should say right, this is what's happening. And, and this is our direction, at least for the next 12 months. 
is that not for the the owners maybe to say that then? Is that not for the you know whoever's ahead of Arsene Wenger, Arsene Wenger's in manager, a, whoever maybe in a normal club? In a normal club, I'd say that yes, but Arsene Wenger clearly has such a degree of control at Arsenal and such influence that you know he seems to decide when he's staying on uh, and when he is going to get his contract renewed, and as it seems he has. He should make the announcement to sort of, you know, uh, give the fans the information as to, to what's going on at the club. I think it's a fair point, but I also think that he, he can say what, you know, he has the he's he's earned the right to do that. And I don't think that changes from whether he makes it now or at the end of the season. And in a way, Arsenal fans need to respect that, although it might be difficult at the moment. Um, obviously, with what's going on at the football club, the result against Manchester City, the results in the previous month, the Bayern Munich hammering. But then also you've got to look at some of the players that just mentally aren't tough enough or mentally just seem a bit stupid. I'm looking at likes of Coquelin, who picks up a needless yellow card inside 15 minutes in a game against Manchester City where you're playing Ryan Sterling, Leroy Sana, David uh, David Silva and Sergio Aguero. Three of them, four of the most agile players in the Premier League that are so good at beating player 1v1. Why is he diving in on 15 minutes, which a tackle he doesn't need to make, a tackle that when Silva has the ball in his own half, only just in his own half, but in his own half. You know, decisions like that from the players, they need to be picked on a little bit more, I think, at the moment, because the analysis is all on Wenger in, Wenger out. But True. there's there's some there's some bad decisions that are going on the pitch. Zaka booked on the 32nd minute. <laughs> Both of Arsenal's defensive midfielders were booked after 30 minutes. That's mental. That's stupid. Nacho Monreal as well. I would say that central midfield is is very um, naive. That mm. uh, the Coquelin Xhaka, when it comes to defensive decision making, it's a, it is a really uh, naive pairing. And and the funny thing is, I mean, look, we we can remember a time when Coquelin was seen as as the heir apparent to to Vieira uh, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and it, it, it is. It's just it's just one of those things where you, you even look at Xhaka when he came in and and everyone was self included reciting the the you know the, the house key story from when he was a kid and all this kind of stuff. It's you have to think there's a recruitment issue at, at Arsenal as well that I think seems to go under the radar a little bit. Just, I mean, just on the last little touch on that, in terms of like Coquelin, it's sort of when Coquelin emerged, Arsenal really needed to sign a defensive midfielder. And it was almost like a false dawn. Arsene Wenger, knowing that this kid was coming through the club, brings him back. He has two to three good games. But then he goes, then he regresses back to his mean level of performance. What we're seeing at the moment, where he's getting needless bookings, he has no impact on games. You know, those first few months that he came back to Arsenal, honestly, stats-wise, he was a world beater. You know, he won the most tackles than any other player. He was making the most interceptions per game. And it's one of those things where, again... Wenger may need to move on with, with his decision-making. Is this guy actually going to massively upgrade my side? Or why did I send him out on loan to Charlton? Mm. Feels hard to justify Xhaka for £40 million when Kante costs £35 million. I know there's a lot of factors that went into it's, those moves, but I mean... I just On the flip side of that, it's signing Xhaka over De Hood. The Arsenal scouts would have been at Borussia Mönchengladbach. I honestly watched Borussia Mönchengladbach a lot that season before Xhaka moved to uh, Arsenal. And I was just surprised why they went for Zaka over Dahoud. Dahoud is an Arsenal player. Dahoud in that midfield right now is winning Arsenal games. Zaka in that midfield right now is just getting along with things. He's just, you know, going with the flow. And I just it's a real weird one that these scouts that have picked all these wonderful players in the past haven't identified someone like Dahoud to bring to the club. What about Manchester City then, Chris? Because with Chelsea slipping up this weekend, City facing them at Stamford Bridge on Wednesday, this is a real missed opportunity for them as well. It's not a great result. 
I mean, as we head towards this home stretch of the season, it has been somewhat of a disappointing opening campaign for Guardiola, given the start they had, given that they were many people's favourites for the title. I mean, looking at that team he put out on Sunday, I mean, it's hard to see many of them still being at the club next season. I mean, a lot of money is going to have to be spent to right this ship, especially at the back for Manchester City this summer under Guardiola. I think so. It's it's about getting Guardiola players as well. That's that's the important thing because look, <clears throat> I've I've run the numbers before. City have spent a staggering amount just on defenders in the the last sort of five, actually, crikey, seven years uh, since the turn of the, the decade. So <clears throat> it it's about and you know I think um, we've alluded to this before. It's very easy to go out and spend money, especially in the, in today's game. You can find enough players that cost a, a huge amount of money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But are you buying players that really work in in your system? Which I think is is something that maybe isn't always considered enough when it comes to to recruitment. Is how does this person work in the system that we want? Are we willing to change the system to to accommodate this player if that's what we're going to do? And if so, can the other ten nine outfield players? Can they work in said system as well? There's a lot of, I think, um, naivety to wider implications when it comes to, to making signings. And, and to me, that comes across a lot when you look at, at City and, and who they've picked up. The thing is, Abe, when you look at that team, it's easier to count up the players you think Guardiola would want to keep next season as opposed to the ones that uh, he'd want to get rid of. As Chris says, there has been mistakes in the recruitment policy. But I mean, <sighs> Nicolas Osamendi for £40 million, he's probably on his way out. Claudio Bravo potentially as well. Willy Caballero, uh, Bakary Sanya, uh, Clichy who started on, on Sunday. There's a number of players there that you'd think Guardiola's going to need to to ship out in order to get this team the way he wants it to be. Oh, I think there's many players. I think Otamende was absolutely awful against Arsenal for me. Lost the man for the corner, but he kept on making stupid mistakes. It, I think the, the Arsenal goal, the first Arsenal goal, comes from a terrible header from Otamende. Doesn't clear his lines, doesn't clear his area. And it's just a basic defensive mistake. You look at Otamende when he was playing at Valencia. He just wasn't doing that type of thing. It's really weird how perception and league really impacts a player's performance levels. You know, someone like Mangard, he was really good at Porto, comes to City, has a really good spell, but then his confidence goes. And it seems like that's kind of a thing for City, that a lot of these defenders or a lot of these defensive players, confidence goes and that's them shot in this Guardiola system. And maybe that's something Guardiola needs to address in the summer. But yeah, they're going to have to sign a... They definitely need fullbacks, 100% need fullbacks. I'd look at someone like Juan Bernat, you know, signed by Pep Guardiola to Bayern Munich from Valencia, um, not really playing at the moment behind Alaba in the pecking order. Maybe City should go and get him at left fullback, at right fullback as well. They need a, they need a, someone there, maybe Sadibi at Monaco. But there's massive money that needs to be put in against this City, City project. The thing that's quite weird is that City have known Guardiola's been coming for a while. Why have these signings been so off? Have been so like, you know, Guardiola comes in and, and they don't really fit. There's a lot of old players in there. They know Guardiola's come in. They know that Guardiola would probably do better with a younger team, with a younger spine. Yet they still have these players in, like Fernando, like Yaya Torre. It's a strange one. It seems like it's all a bit muddled at the moment for City. Mm, it is indeed. It is indeed. Uh, let's move on then to the Merseyside derby. Liverpool coming out on top in the end. A 3-1 win for Jurgen Klopp's side over Everton. Philippe Coutinho back to his best, Dave, and a comfortable win in the end. Uh, yeah, I definitely say so. Back to his best, you know, following his performance for Brazil 
um, in the South American qualifiers for the World Cup. He had a fantastic game, um, you know, partnering the likes of Firmino and Neymar. And he sort of brought that form back to Liverpool, who's who was so good in the game. It's classic, classic Coutinho where he plays this, um, plays on the left wing, but he drifts inside and also almost creates a diamond in midfield for Liverpool. You know, one of the things Sir Alex Ferguson used to do a lot towards the end of his tenure was create diamonds in midfield, whether it was playing a diamond in midfield or where you knew the tip or it was someone like Shinji Kagawa playing wide, coming in, creating a diamond with the two forwards or so forth. But that's what Coutinho is doing for this Liverpool side and it gives them a massive um, new dimension and attack when Coutinho's in there, when Coutinho's back on form and the goal was fantastic. Idrissi Gaia is a player that's that's been really good this season over the last two years for Villa and for Everton. Kind of, you know, got completely done, completely stood mm. up, completely mm. taken taken a control of in this game by Coutinho. But he was so good at, you know, those one on one situations, always going past, always coming in onside onto his right foot. But it was a wonderful performance. But I also say someone like Sado Mane as well played very, very well. And Divock Origi has been going under the radar in terms of Liverpool since the start of last season. Only Olivier Giroud scored more goals off the bench than Divock Origi, so he's having an impact for Jurgen Klopp. And maybe with the way that they need to solve this problem against teams that play a low block. Maybe Divock Origi's the guy that they need to bring in. The only thing I'd say about Origi was uh, very fortunate with some very poor defending uh, from Everton and I'm not quite sure what Robles was doing coming out of goal uh, where he was there. Bizarre choice. Um, and Origi just had to bang it almost straight down the <laughs> middle to score. Um, having said that, Mane, I mean, you do highlight Mane there. Of course, he went off with potentially a seriously looking injury. Uh, he fell and sort of tangled awkwardly under Leighton Baines who was trying to clear the ball. Could potentially be a big miss for them if he is out for an extended period of time given Liverpool's struggles without him in January, Dave? It could be. It could be a real big one. We saw how his impact at the African Cup of Nations was huge for Liverpool. Absolutely huge in terms of him leading the press but also giving Liverpool a bit of a impetus in the attack you know how he dribbles and how he carries the ball there's no one else on that Liverpool team that can do that he's almost given the Liverpool system of Coutinho being the playmaker Firmino being a bit of a false player being a false nine coming towards the ball they need someone to uh, to you know get into that striking position and that's what Sodo Mane's been doing in the last few weeks and been doing it very very well so without him that's going to be a big miss and you know also not just in terms of him getting into that area it's also carrying that ball like Coutinho did against Everton, but it's Marde's carrying the ball is a little bit different. It's a little bit faster. It's a little bit harder to play against. And I think mm. that he'll be a big miss and he's going to have to work it out whether Origi comes in, if he's injured or Sturridge comes in. There's going to have to be a solution there for Klopp in midfield. Frustrating game for Everton though. You can see that on the pitch. Ross Barkley perhaps lucky to stay on Two challenges, one on Emre Chan uh, and then Lovren as well. Ashley Williams as well going in on Emre Chan's knee in a particularly nasty-looking challenge. Uh, the result, though, seriously dents Everton's chances of European qualification, Chris. Um, chances that could be almost non-existent. They're at Old Trafford on Tuesday night against Manchester United, who themselves are pushing for uh, a similar position. I'm sure the master tactician can sort them out. Um, I, I think <clears throat> the, the thing with Everton is you look at the team, and, and I don't know if that the aspiration towards Europe was maybe there at the start of the season, or it seemed even realistic, perhaps, is a better way to frame it, because it was very much a late transition to them at board level and, and from the ownership. And and I think it sounds harsh to say to Evan fans, because you know they've not always had the easiest time of it, a little bit of patience, I think, would go a long way for them, just because they flexed their financial muscle in, in buying uh, Balassi, from getting a few players in. And I think uh, you look at the, the situation for them. Next 
summer, excuse me, the summer that's, that is rapidly approaching us, I think will be huge for them. I think you'll see a lot of, uh, maybe not necessarily big names, but more influential players come into that team and offer them something. Um, and it, at the minute, it just seems like it's one jump too far. Um, I think things changed ever so slightly when Tom Davies comes in because he looks like a, a Premier League ready player and someone that will contribute moving forward. So it's it just seems like it's very much a work in progress for me, Everton, at the minute. And I, I think that that tag, if you will, shifts slightly come the, the summer because they'll be able to, to move considerably on the project. Mm, I think you're right. I think yeah, their recent run since the turn of the year really is what sort of propelled them into that that sort of European qualification bracket. Um, big defeats against Liverpool now and uh, Spurs a few weeks ago. So there is that there is that sense that, like you said, they couldn't can't step up to the next level as it is. But if the recruitment is right in the summer, we will see. I mean, they have just got Tom Davies to sign a new five year contract, which of course is a, a big deal for Everton fans, I'm sure. Um, but we will see what happens with Everton next season. Kind of disagree with that. I think that they they lose Lukaku. That's it. Like they will drop down a peg again. Do you think, I think we, that's the they problem. could reinvest if it's done smartly? Reinvesting that money though, which could yeah, be what fifty, sixty they, million. They spent they spent thirty million on Balassi. They ended up scrapping around the transfer market and got Anna Valencia on a loan deal on yeah. deadline day. They missed out on Musa Sissoko for thirty million. They dodged a bullet there as well. They did touch a bit. Yeah, but they were trying to get him. I'm not saying his recruitment. Their recruitment has been perfect, but I'm saying if they did make the right signings, if they keep these young players like Davies, exactly. you know, they, they could be moving to that other level, as we've seen Spurs do in recent years. But um, yeah, as you say, it is a big ask. It is a big ask. Um, let's talk about Chelsea. Defeated this weekend, the champions in waiting, or are they, Dave? Uh, put to the sword by Crystal Palace on Saturday. Uh, Mamadou Sacco putting in another heroic performance uh, for the Eagles. Wilfried Zahar also a standout. One superb finish, one assist for a delightful Christian Benteke finish. Sitting down Courtois, lifting the ball over him into the empty net to give Palace all three points. The title race is back on, isn't it, Dave? Mm, I think it would have been if um, City had won. If City had beaten Arsenal, I think it would be back on. But now I think it's, you know, that's about, one of the What about Spurs? Game- Spurs are just a mere seven points adrift, Dave. Adam, we all know about Spurs and how they can't handle the last seven games in the Premier League under Pochettino. It's like fact. It's Premier League fact, I'm afraid, buddy. You just run out of steam. But then, then again, you have changed your system. You, you are dealing without Harry Kane at the moment. We're dealing. We are dealing. You know, If you can get through that period, Kane comes back, he you know, steps up straight away like he did last time. You know, We you could, could win the title. Could, is you that what could you're win the title, Adam. That wow. is what I'm saying. Wowie. Um, do you think realistically, though, it is, it's still done and dusted unless, say, City take points away from Chelsea this this week? You know, then the conversation, then it becomes a reality, essentially. I just think the system's too good. I honestly think the system is the system that you should switch to in the Premier League right now. Uh, the quicker that you adopt the 3-4-3 right now, the quicker you'll win games. With any, with any team, I just think it, it's, for some was, reason, it's, it seems to counter, counter what Premier League teams are doing at the moment in a defensive sense to deal with the 4-2-3-1. Well, what was Chelsea's problem on Saturday with them? Was it they had to sort of slightly change the system with uh, Marcus Alonso out and they sort of had Pedro as a right wing back? I mean, they created plenty of chances. It was just that Palace just wouldn't let them score. I think that that's one of the factors. Um, Pedro playing as a wing back, you know, is a little bit too offensive. But also, in a you know, in an attacking sense, is Pedro used to playing so deep? One of the issues with um, Pedro before was that there were too many players for him to get past to score a goal. 
um, in this Conte system, it was very direct. He's always on the last man. So when he's a bit deeper, he becomes a li- little bit less effective. But in terms of what you've got to say as well, is Big Sam, what a hero. You know, signs in Sacco, four wins on the trot, conceded one goal in those four wins and scored, uh, you know, a big six goals. <laughs> this is the thing. How much of this is down to the big man, Mamadou Sacco? I don't want to go overboard. I'm not one for no, no, hyperbole, it's, it's as you know. Sam Allardyce, Adam. It's all about it's Sam, Sam as opposed to it's all Sam. about all about Big Sam. All about Big Sam. Every single part of it is about Big Sam. Even Big Sam switched to a back five at the end of the game. That's how good Big Sam is. Holding leads. Like He's a genius. Star. I like his style. Talk to me about uh, Wilfried Zaha, Chris, because obviously this is a player who we know has got a lot of talent. Signed for Manchester United, of course, a few years back. Never really worked out. Never been able to produce in terms of goals and assists, in terms of that Ed product in the Premier League. But now Palace is having his best ever season, it has to be said. He, he has. I think my issue with him has always been consistency. Um, I, I think his his ability, his, his potential technically, all that kind of stuff, is is fantastic. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. <clears throat> but again, it's, it's whether he's able to do that. And then also dictate and dominate games in the way that we would expect a player of his potential to do. That's the other issue, is that he, if, there have been times in his career where he's drifted out of games and, and things like that. And uh, I just want to see a little bit more from him in terms of consistency. I know that sounds like a really harsh ask, given what he's doing at the minute, not just at club level, but also for the Ivory Coast. You know, he's got a, a sensational goal against Russia, just just that international break on there. So I think in terms of the Spurs move, I would argue looking... And again, this is Steve Davis slightly in hindsight. Um, I think you look at what they paid for for Musa Sissoko. I would argue that that Wolf Zaha is really the kind of player I think they were trying to get. Um, so it's it's an interesting one from that perspective. If he does go there, I think he's a much better fit there than it, than Sissoko ever will be. Um, it's just if Palace want a deal, because that's the thing for their aspirations. You would argue losing someone like Zahar is massive. Oh, of course. I'm, I'm sure they'll do everything they can to keep hold of him uh, this summer, as they did last summer. I think Spurs went in with 12 million they tried to get him for, um, which Palace rejected out of hand. Strangely, they decided to double that and put a bit on top uh, in order to get Suzuko, which I'm not quite sure was worth the money. Um, he did feature this weekend, though, uh, for Spurs against Burnley, uh, a 2-0 win at Turf Moor. Goals from Eric Dyer and Heung-Min Son. Big result, I think, has to be said for Spurs. Uh, with Chelsea dropping points, with Manchester United, City and Arsenal also dropping points. And given the team Pochettino put out, I don't think there was a, a massive amount of confidence. Seeing Vincent Janssen starting up front with Harry Kane out, of course, um, it, it, it doesn't inspire confidence, they say that much. Um, also, we had Victor Wanyama and Harry Winks forced to be withdrawn for injury in the first half. And, you know, at a side like Burnley, who rarely lose at home themselves, it is a big three points. And I think for Spurs, you know, as Dave's sort of saying, pushing their sides do struggle towards the end of the season. It was good to see some strength in depth from the bench secure the victory in the end. You know, Moussa Dembele coming on for, for Wanyama, Heung-Min Son as well coming on to seal the win. Unfortunately, it does look now like Winks could be out for the season, according to what Pochettino said today in his pre-match uh, press conference ahead of this weekend, uh, this midweek fixture. Um, he's joining Danny Rose, Eric Lamella and Kane on the sidelines. Kane, though, could be back in just a few weeks' time, hopefully in time for the uh, the FA Cup semi-final against Chelsea on the 22nd of April. So the double still on, you know, is still a possibility. Um, 
So we'll see if that is something that happens this season. I will take... Uh, I think, you know, we are going to be the most realistic challengers to Chelsea. I'm not saying there is a challenge on. I'm not saying that, you know, the, the possibility of the title is there. But, um, yeah, let's see what happens on Wednesday. Let's see what happens on Wednesday. Um, moving on. Let's talk about Hull to West Ham United. Nil, a fourth successive defeat for the Hammers. Uh, a 2-1 loss at Hull on Saturday. Now without a win in six uh, Slavin Bilic after the game, Chris receiving the dreaded vote of confidence. That's curtains for him now, isn't it? Well, it usually is, isn't it? The, that is why it's called the dreaded vote of confidence after all. I think West Ham, it's just a team with no plan to me. That's that's its, its issue. It, it has these grand aspirations. It wants to be in the Olympic Stadium, etc., etc. That's that's all well and good. But it means nothing if, if you're not actually able to to put the pathway together on how you're going to get there um, to the Champions League and all that kind of stuff. I, I think you look at some of the signings as well. A lot of them, to me, seemed like name-brand shopping um, in football rather than, again, it goes back to what we we started the pod with. Is this person going to fit into the system? Is this person going to work with what we want to do? Um, and I think you look at their attempts to sign a striker because uh, Andy Carroll's injury record is, is, is pretty ropey at the best of times. And and that for me typifies a, a club that again just goes out very much on the day that it needs something and tries to shop rather than attempts to look ahead. This is your prediction, wasn't it, Dave? No, I did predict it a while ago. It seems like it's taken a while for everyone to realise, but it just seems a bit. That's the thing. Predictions don't have a yeah. time limit. You can predict something, and if it comes true ten years later, you know everyone else is eating humble that... pie. But I'm just like, what? What are West Ham's? You know, bored doing? Are they not watching my videos? That's their that's their main. They're not issue. listening to the front three. That is their main podcast. issue in many ways. What what should they be taking away then? Dave? <laughs> I think they should go to Hull and get Marco Silva as their new manager. But I feel real sorry for Marco Silva. I reckon he would keep them up if he'd been at the start of the season. Their form's been in the last six games: two wins, one draw, two defeats. You know, it's pretty decent for a team that needs to stay up. And you know, they they are close to catching Swansea, one point behind Swansea, but I just can't see them cat I can't see any other teams other than Hull, Middlesbrough and Sunderland going down, unfortunately. I can't see anyone else dropping and becoming that bad. Swansea have got too much quality. Palace are on a run now. Burnley are too good at home, and then West Ham just are too far away from the drop zone. So yeah, I'd, if I if I was any Premier League club that are thinking about getting rid of their manager or upgrading their side, I'd go to go and get Marco Silva. Could Why be not? available. Could be available in the summer if there is indeed a vacancy at West Ham. Um Let's come to it then, Dave. Let's talk about Manchester United. They drew 0-0 at home to West Bromwich Albion. Difficult to escape the feeling we've we've seen this game before this season. I think it's it's an interesting one for Manchester United in terms of uh, what they're they're doing is that they're just not putting teams away. You know, they've drawn eleven games in the Premier League. That's the most of any other side. But if you look at it in terms of like the conversion rates and so forth, which we will do, we're going a little bit of a tour now, Adam. It's interesting. I, I put the United's um, failings into two two categories. One is you know failing to create. You look at games like Liverpool, uh, Arsenal, Everton, and then where another category where it's either poor finishing or really good goalkeeping or a combination of the both. That's the likes of Stoke, Burnley, Hull, West Brom, and whatever. But if you look at United's um, shot stats, it's it's terrible reading. So if you look at shots within the penalty area that you you know you should be putting away United have had 278 shots within the penalty area only Liverpool have had more shots within the box than Manchester United but if you flip it over and you look at the conversion rate only Southampton and Middlesbrough have got a worse conversion rate than Manchester United so it's one of those things where United are just not taking their chances they're fundamentally missing chances 
it seems like they need to do some finishing training or something, or they need to think about doing it a different way because at the moment it's just not working. But you could also look at the method of chance creation as well. Um, you know, they have they've played the second most amount of crosses in the Premier League this season. Potentially, that's a waste of possession. If you look at the data as well, in the in the 14 games this season when United have played over 25 crosses or more, they've only scored more than one goal on one occasion, and that was against Middlesbrough when they were, you know, they basically just went long to Fellaini. I think it's a it's an issue between those factors of poor finishing and chance creation being from the wrong areas. Well, in this game, then I think yeah, I think I'm right in saying there were over 30 crosses uh, against three, to, be, to be precise. 33 against West Brom with that back line is. Is that not down to Mourinho then to approach the game in that way? So it, it, I think it comes up as two things. One, United are missing Pogba, Zlatan and Ander Herrera. And I don't mean it in terms of, uh, you know, these players are pretty decent. They've been very good for United this season. I mean in a, in a through ball percentage way where Pogba, Zlatan and Herrera have played seven, uh, have played sorry, 59% of United's through balls in the Premier League this season. So these are the guys with the vision to play that through pass. Without them... Um, you've got the likes of Mkhitaryan, but again, he's been hot and cold this season. It was very cold against West Brom. In terms of that, so they're not playing the through balls, but they're also not finding their teammates in the penalty area. You look at the band of three behind it, playing behind Marcus Rashford and later to Wayne Rooney in the game. So I'm talking Mkhitaryan, Martial and Jess Lingard. They only completed six passes into the penalty area. And quite frankly, you know, it's good defensive play from um, Tony Pulis, but also it is potentially Mourinho trying out. He needs to find another way to beat these sides. This Maybe one, go with two strikers. This one Maybe switch to a 3-4-3. I want to see some criticism of Jose Mourinho. United's home win ratio this season is now their worst ever in the Premier League era. I mean, we were, start, we were speaking at the start of the year, the turn of the year, about how this Manchester United team, they're starting to come together. And the fact does remain they are on a 19-game unbeaten run. But at the end of the day, do you think they're underperforming and Jose Mourinho is underperforming given their current status? No, I don't think so. I think if United had the luck of... Or they so basically, if you work out those games that I mentioned before, the games that I class as poor finishing that's costing United points. If United's conversion rate within the penalty area goes from 12.5% on average in those games to 15.7% in those games, uh, then you work out like a you know, an, kind of an expected goals model or an expected result model. In all those games, United win the games by the quality of chances they're creating, they should be winning these games. That gives United an extra 14 points, you know, you're converting a draw into a win. If you extrapolate all that data, if that actually makes sense to anyone apart from me and the entire world, they'll be second with two points behind Chelsea. If they're converting seven of those 11 draws into wins. Unfortunately, they're not second highest. Unfortunately, they're not second place behind Chelsea, though, Chris. Um, and to me, it looked like Mourinho was trying to uh, try to deflect a little bit away from himself at the end of the game. Bit of the blame game with some post-match comments. He first bemoaned the lack of consistency from certain players. He then turned on a BBC reporter. Wasn't happy with his questioning about how teams, both teams, cancelled each other out. Uh, and then he turned on Luke Shaw, Chris, as well. Yeah, you have to think that that is the the death knell in, in Luke Shaw's Manchester United career. That that whole exchange and and you know series of comments. I, I do wonder. I was reading something. Um, just today, I've, I can't remember where, so apologies. It might have been the, the independent. Um, talking about the fact that, that Mourinho tried to sign uh, Shaw for Chelsea when he was at Southampton. And ultimately, he canned the deal because he didn't like Shaw's wage demands. Um, and he essentially said, you know, how can I justify it to a player who's played 200 games for, for Chelsea that a, a youngster like him is earning more? 
you've got to wonder if maybe there's just a little bit of hold over there. The fact that you know there's there's just sort of you know you you spurned me kind of uh, situation and whether Mourinho was at all holding that against him. I, I do think it's a weird one though because I I can't personally remember a, a time in Mourinho's career where he's been so critical of the the players uh, under his charge. Usually, you know the the way he operates or the way we believe he operates is forming a wall around the squad and then implying that it's everyone else who has the problem and, and you know, they're the ones against that group. So the it's, old it's siege a very mentality, weird yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very weird change of tact from Mourinho. Um, you, you have to wonder maybe, is it intentional? Maybe is it the pressure getting to him and the fact that, uh, again, he's got this job that he was so desperate for, but success hasn't necessarily... Or at least this point, it hasn't uh, come along with his his hiring. Dave, what do you make of that? Because uh, infamously, we saw him throw Nemanja Matic under the bus uh, last season at Chelsea. Uh, is this a case of, of the pressure getting to Mourinho, or is this just uh, classic Jose? I think it's an interesting point, actually, looking at the whole Shaw situation like that, that he snubbed him in the past and kind of Mourinho... We know Mourinho can hold a grudge. Oh, he can hold a grudge. He can hold a grudge. He can really hold a grudge, really hold a grudge. And I think that could be a really good... You know, it's a really good um, point of view that that Chris has put across. And it, it could be right. That really could be right. You know, the wage demands, the everything that's happened in the past, it could be just Mourinho holding a grudge and being like, OK, you're not, you know... You've not applied yourself as well as you should be doing. I'm going to hammer you on the training ground. If you not respond to this hammering, then maybe, you know, you're not for me. Would you be sad to see him go if he does indeed leave in the summer? Or do you think, or do you trust uh, Jose Mourinho's assessment of Shaw? Because this was, he, he was the most expensive teenager in the world at the, at the time of his transfer. I trust what Mourinho is doing. I think Mourinho wants a certain player of uh, certain personality. And I think that's the big thing that potentially Luke Shaw doesn't have that personality or doesn't share um, personality traits with, with Mourinho. Uh, there's, there's many left backs in world football that could peak Luke Shaw that are better than Luke Shaw now. So I'm not too worried. You know, someone like Mendy um, at Monaco would be a great sign of Manchester United. Fantastic at Marseille under uh, Bielsa and then under Yardim at Monaco has been brilliant. So, you know, that's an instant replacement that arguably is at a higher point in his career right now and could could continue to go higher and higher. So it's one of those things where there's, there's other options. There's always other options. Like United sell David De Gea in the summer, which they probably will do. Quite frankly, firstly, as a fan, I don't care. Um, you can get another goalkeeper, <laughs> whatever. And David De Gea wanted to move to Real Madrid. Yeah, go to Real Madrid, whatever. We can sign another keeper. There's always other keepers. There's always this next wonder kid coming through. There's always this player that potentially could be, you know, have a higher ceiling than the one before. So I think it's fine. Transfers are transfers. If Mourinho doesn't think Shaw's good enough, he'll sign an adequate replacement. It'd be more of an issue if Shaw had come through the United Academy. Mm-hmm. I think that had been more of an issue, but he hasn't. So it's one of those things where, you know, go and get someone else. Let's talk Sunderland. Uh, Watford ended their four-game winless run against the Black Cats. Uh, Miguel Britos had earning them all three points, leaving Sunderland rock bottom of the table. Uh, a bad weekend made even worse for David Moyes. Chris, when it emerged, he'd said he would slap a female reporter after taking exception to her line of questioning following Sunderland's match against Burnley earlier in March, on March 18th. Uh, if you haven't heard the audio, take a listen here now. Just getting a wee bit naughty at the end there, so just watch yourself and you might get a looking, you still might get a slap even though you're a woman. I mean, it is just 
a bizarre thing for David Moyes to say. Well, there's clearly some laughter there from the two, uh, maybe more uncomfortable laughter on the behalf of the reporter, Vicky Sparks of, uh, of BBC Newcastle. He's warning to her at the end, you know, to be careful. It, it just seems a little bit sinister, doesn't it, Chris? Uh, yes, I think he's got a very dry sense of humour as well. I think that is playing part of that here. Um, look, it's a really stupid thing to say. And as I said to, to you guys off air, I think what makes it worse is that he follows that statement up with, even though you're a woman. That's that's what really doesn't help him here, I think, in, in my opinion. Um, the thing with Moyes is, and we've touched on this before, his media handling style is really quite poor. Um, and I, I'm not just isolating this incident. I find in general he is someone that will often paint a negative from a positive situation. And as a coach, I, I can't say I've spoken to anyone that's worked under him, but I can't imagine he's the most inspiring person to play for. There was the whole, um, I remember the whole thing at Manchester United when he said they need to be more like Manchester City, which was just a big no-no. A couple of weeks ago as well, he was talking about having more Englishness in the middle of the park, you know. All this sort of stuff sort of, uh, sort of contributes to that image of David Moyes. I mean, it's not clear why it's emerging now a few weeks after the incident, but even so, there are calls for further action from the FA, Chris. Now he has come out and apologised. Do you think that should be the end of it? I, th- I think, honestly, no, because I think the problem is if you do that, you set a very bad present, and I think you could really... Um, what's the word I'm on for you? I think you could very much uh, leave female reporters in the game feeling quite abandoned, because, again... It's one of those things where it can seem like a joke, but as you said it in your little, in your intro there, it can also seem quite sinister. And look, Vicky is a fairly experienced reporter. If that's someone new to the job, male or female, that's definitely the kind of moment that can intimidate someone and stop them asking a question the next week, or maybe you know, give them that feeling that, oh crap, I don't want to rock the boat here. That's the so thing, I think it? actually it's it's important from that perspective, to protect uh, the reporter in question and just set a precedent, I think, for, for the future. I, d- I don't think, like I say, I don't think Vicky, um, having met her and, and worked with her, I don't think it's a situation whereby she's you know, that concerned by it because, again, she's very experienced. She's done this job for, for quite a while. It's, it's the, those coming after um, that you need to think about as well. Well, yeah, because... Uh... The reporter, so she didn't actually make a complaint, but it was her colleagues who were, were unimpressed by Moy's comments, and that's what sort of led to this uh, this further action, as it were. I think you're right. It is a case, regardless of gender, of David Moyes almost trying to intimidate and influence a reporter into perhaps not asking certain sort of questions in the future. So it'd be interesting to see if the FA do indeed take it further. I believe they've written to David Moyes to ask him to explain his actions now. So it remains to be seen what the repercussions of that will be. Um, Elsewhere, let's wrap up the rest of the Premier League action uh, briefly this weekend. Uh, Leicester City beating Stoke City 2-0. Craig Shakespeare, now the first ever British manager to win his first four Premier League games. Ranieri who, Dave? Snakes on a plane who, Adam? Snakes on a plane. Uh, (laughs) Elsewhere, we also had 
Harriata missing a late penalty as Bournemouth drew 0-0 with Southampton. Uh, a point for Eddie Howe's side, meaning they've now taken 10 from their last four games. Uh, having failed to win the first eight league games in 2017, they're now seven clear of the relegation zone on 34 points. Southampton level on the same amount of points, but a place above in 10th with two games in hand. Uh, finally, Swansea and Middlesbrough playing out a dour 0-0 draw themselves. Uh, a point, a better result for Paul Clement's side, who are a point clear of the drop zone. Uh, Middlesbrough, however, now five points from safety and four points behind 18th-placed Hull, who they do indeed face in a must-win game on Wednesday. Uh, hard to see Middlesbrough escaping from trouble as it stands. Hull as well, has to be said. Um, right, let's move on to talk about all the action from around Europe. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We have to start by talking about Celtic. They won their six successive Scottish Premiership title on Sunday uh, with eight games to spare, no less. Uh, a 5-0 win over Hearts. Celtic joining Al Ali and Olympiacos as the only clubs in world football to win six straight titles on three different occasions. A massive achievement for Celtic. Uh, they're still unbeaten, of course, aiming to become the first invincible side in the Scottish top flight in 118 years. They will, of course, have played 20 more games than that Rangers side in 1899. Uh, it's the manner of the triumph, though, Dave. Was Celtic 25 points ahead of second place Aberdeen. I mean, there's been plenty of scepticism about the level of competition in the Scottish Premiership because of that. But is it not that dominance that makes it an impressive achievement for Brendan Rodgers, uh, the, the way his team have won the title, given the way they won the previous season? I think, you know, it is impressive. It's impressive um, when a team does dominate a league so badly. You know, the level of, of, of competitiveness was interesting. You know, the, the game that I've seen Celtic live this season, I was quite impressed when I went to... Um, Celtic Park to to watch them against Barcelona. You know they they created a few chances. They did cause Barcelona some problems. Uh, Moussa Dembele, obviously the, the standout performer for them in the league this season, uh, but also was good in Europe. But then could have taken some chances and um, caused Barcelona a little bit more problem in that game. But in terms of them, you know, credit to Brendan Rodgers. He's he's recovered from his days at Liverpool, which is good because he's a good coach. He's a good coach, and he will he will be back at the top level one day. It's going to take him time to mature, maybe, and to you know. Uh, come back from the, the defeat of, of Liverpool, even though they came second in the league. We always forget that, that his Liverpool team came second in the league. An incredible achievement. He's come back as well from uh, his first game in charge at Celtic, uh, a 1-0 away defeat to the Redimps, uh, which, if you remember, was seen as the worst result in Celtic's history. Uh, now, of course, they are on course for a potential domestic treble, something only two other managers have ever achieved in Celtic's history. But looking at the, the wider picture, Chris, uh, it is difficult to look past that lack of strength in the Scottish Premiership and surely the true measure of Rodgers and this Celtic side that he's built will surely be in next season's Champions League to see if they can compete, see if they can raise their level against the European elite. Massively so. You look at Rangers who really have had to try and, and be smart in the market, getting likes of Windass and Fodderingham and Emerson Hyman on loan. It's, it, for me, I don't think it's it's purely 
defined in terms of the financial advantage that Celtic have. I think that that's doing a disservice to Brendan Rodgers. I think it's it's the calibre of player they can get. It's the fact that they can tempt a, a Moussa Dembele um, to come and join them. That helps massively. Uh, I also think though that they themselves have, have been quite smart in, in getting the likes of Patrick Roberts on loan. I think that's a really, really good deal in my eyes because he looks uh, a real player. Um, I'd be very surprised if if Guardiola doesn't take to him quite fondly when, when he gets back to the, the fold at City because he, he's, to me at least, he seems like a very uh, Guardiola-type winger. Are we about to see as well, Dave, the first ever player to go two invincible seasons? I am, of course, talking about Colo Torre. Has that ever happened before? Has anyone ever done that? don't think so, you know. It's a rare thing. Looking back at the Arsenal team, what a team that was. So so far away from the current Arsenal team, the likes of Gilberto Silva, Vieira, Lundberg, Pires, obviously Colo Torre at the back, Thierry Henry, Bergkamp. What a team. But no, I don't I don't think he probably is the only ever player to do that in Scotland and England, I'd say. If you, if you know the answer, the... guys, write in, tell us, because yeah. I'm putting out there that Colo Torre is going to be the first ever player to go through two seasons unbeaten with two different teams. You heard it here first. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I haven't got such a good track record with bets at the moment, so uh, maybe we'll leave that one for now. Um, let's say hola to Spain, Dave. Uh, in Spain, Sevilla's title challenge is all but over now. A nil-nil draw at Sporting Gijon, leaving them 10 points behind Real Madrid. Uh, they won 3 at home to Alaves, scoring in their 50th consecutive match, extending the Spanish league record. Incredible stuff. Takes them two points ahead of Barcelona, who themselves beat Granada 4-1. Neymar stepping up in the absence of the suspended Lionel Messi. Uh, the Brazilian scoring his 100th goal for the club on Sunday, reaching the milestone in less time than his Argentine teammate. Um, 11, 11 games, in fact, Adam. 11 games, in fact. You know your stuff, Dave. You do know your stuff. I know. I see now why they call you the Statman. Um, but yeah, that Al Clasico. Al Clasico in three weeks' time is going to be very, very tasty indeed, I think. Um, Barcelona is still two points behind, but... You know, that could be the one chance for them to get back in this race. Uh, let's say good and talk to the Bundesliga, Dave. Talk to me. Because a certain player uh, may have uh, may have refuted some people's doubts about him this weekend. Cha-cha. I can only assume he's, he's, a, he's a listener of the podcast, you know. He was so insulted by my insinua- insinuation mm. that he wouldn't cut it in a five-side team that win Champions League. And he responded by banging in a seven-minute hat-trick against Leverkusen as a repudiation of my comments. Yeah, I'd like you to, you know, make a full statement and apologise against the great Mario Gomez and say that you're greatly sorry. Right. That if he does it again next in... week, if he does it again next week, maybe, then, then, uh, then Adam, talk to me. don't be like that. No, you, you doubted him. You doubted Mario to score a hat trick. He's got he's got impeccable timing. Time. Impeccable timing. I'll give him that. He does great, great timing. But anyway, the Bundesliga this week. Friday night we kicked off with Hoffenheim versus Hertha Berlin. Hoffenheim won three goals to one. A cracking goal from Nicholas Schürrle, ex Leicester City player. Kramerich grabbed a brace as well in that game, which is interesting. It's left sort of um, pushed Hoffenheim up the the league to now they're third in the division and they're one point ahead of Borussia Dortmund. In fact, Borussia Dortmund and Hoffenheim have the same fixtures remaining in the season where they both play the same opponent so it's going to be really interesting to see who gets that automatic um place in terms of the uh the big game it was Schalke versus Dortmund in the uh Revere derby uh, the game finished 1-1 similar to the first game it was a draw 0-0 in the first one this was had some goals uh Bemiang with another cracking celebration 
Um, but yeah, the game finished one goal apiece. Werder Bremen continuing their semi-good form, winning 5-2 um, against good old Freiburg. Darmstadt lost 4-0 to RB Leipzig uh, with Nabi Keita absolutely starring, grabbing a cheeky little brace um, for what it was needed. Following a little bit of a tough spell in his career, you know, out ill. Um, uh, he collapsed after a game two weeks ago, so it's good to see him back in the goals. Hamburg continued their resurgence, beating Cologne uh, 2-1. That was sort of one of the surprises of the Bundesliga season, uh, not season, sorry, this weekend, uh, with obviously Anthony Modest as the absolute Gary goals of the Bundesliga this season. It was a surprise that Hamburg did beat them. Um, and Lewandowski continued his fine goal-scoring form for Bayern Munich. Scored another hat-trick. He's just scored so many goals this season. Eintracht Frankfurt um, had a bit of a board draw with Borussia Mönchengladbach, nil-nil. Ingolstadt beat Mainz. And, of course, the big one, Wolfsburg versus Bayer Leverkusen. An absolute belting game. Two goals to nil. Leverkusen did lead on the 80th minute. But Mario Gomez, a hat-trick inside seven minutes. Absolutely incredible. But that wasn't it. That wasn't mm. enough for the excitement. Kai Havitz equalised for Leverkusen on the 89th minute, but he also grabbed an assist in that game for a player that's um, 17 years old. That is absolutely incredible. Pretty much the next big German prodigy coming through in the Bundesliga right now. Remember the name, Kai Havitz. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. Um, let's say ciao to, uh, to Serie A then, Dave. Uh, Champions-elect Juventus taking on Napoli. How did this one go? It was a good game, a really interesting game of football. Juve, um, Allegri sort of went with a counter approach to Napoli. Napoli this season have been so good down their left-hand side, the likes of Insignia linking with, with Hamzik in that area. So what um, Allegri did is he played uh, Lamina out wide at right midfield. So he played a central midfielder at, at right midfield and it kind of negated that side. Great goal at the start, Pjanic playing through um, Kadira to, to finish. Juve grabbed the lead. It looked like a classic Juve performance. They sat deep. They defended very, very well. But credit to Napoli and credit to Marim Hamzik, who scored 111 goals for Napoli. Only Diego Maradona has scored more goals for the Naples club. Incredible record. And his finish was superb. Ooh. But also another midfielder that really shone as well, Jorginho, who uh, pretty much copied what Sergio Busquets does for Barcelona, held in front of the back four, intercepted the ball. But his range of passing was absolutely fantastic. He completed 105 passes against um, Juventus, in fact. Only Joshua Kimmich and, of course, Michael Carrick have managed more in Europe's top five leagues this weekend. But it wasn't just short passes, balls over the top, balls inside, breaking the lines, two insignia, all sorts of fun. But it was a great game and a 1-1 draw. But more interestingly, Napoli may be out of the title race, and the title race is at Juve, but there's a big game in the uh, Coppa Italia on, I think it's on Wednesday night, Juve versus Napoli. Juve won the first uh, leg 3-1. This second one in Naples is Napoli's last shot at Silverware. It's going to be a blinder. Tasty stuff. Very tasty stuff. It got a bit tasty in the stands, of course. The build-up to this game, dominated by Gonzalo Higuain's return to Naples. Many fans greeting him with uh, with signs bearing the number 71. Chris, any any guesses what the number 71 means on those, on those signs and banners? Uh, well, I know that 17 is sort of an unknown. I try that again. An unlucky number in Italy. It's it's it the is. Italian equivalent of thirteen. It is so indeed. I'm, I'm gonna presume it's some some sort of reverse of that. Something like you. That's how you wish someone bad luck, maybe. Chris, you would be completely wrong. Uh, it is, uh-huh. of course, from the Italian book, the Smorfia, 
loosely translated to the Book of Dreams, which is often used by Italians when picking lottery numbers. Every number from 1 to 90 represents a figure, character or a personality trait. Um, 71, of course, representing l'homme et merde, which translate to the man of poop. So uh, there you have it. Also in Serie A this weekend, we do have to say the man stealing the headlines alongside Higuain was none other than Alejandro Papu Gomez, Dave. Uh, he scored a hat-trick, bagged himself a hat-trick in a five-star win over Genoa, uh, taking his tally to the season for 14. And most importantly, I'm sure you'll all agree, earning himself a nomination for the front free player of the week. Alongside, as we've already mentioned, Mario Gomez, and Scott Sinclair, who got himself a hat-trick in that 5-0 win over Hearts uh, for Celtic at the weekend as they sealed their sixth successive title. <gasps> the results are in. The votes have been counted. They have been verified. And I can now reveal that in third place is Scott Sinclair with 18% of the vote tied in second place due to alphabetical reasons. Alejandro Papo Gomez with 18% as well. That means with a massive 64% of the votes, Mario Gomez is taking home the Player of the Week trophy this week, which is, of course, as always, a box of Ferrero Rocher. Mario, we know you're listening. You're obviously listening last week. Do get in touch. Send us your address. We'll get those Ferrero Rocher sent out to you as soon as we can. Before we go, uh, Chris, I want to ask you about the one and only Bastian Schweinsteiger. Uh, how did it go on his debut for Chicago Fire? He scored a goal. Um, no. He scored a goal very early on, in fact. Uh, it ended 2-2. In, in, in a funny way, it kind of resembled Chicago from last season. So they, they were in a, a fairly good position. They took the lead uh, against a very good Montreal team. And then uh, going into sort of the, the dying embers, if you will, they conceded a second. And it looked as if the game was, was, was dead and buried for them. And they were going to lose, which on the balance of play, I, th- I thought was a little bit harsh on them because, you know, they, they had done uh, fairly well. And then Solniak manages to pull out an absolute worldie of a, uh, an equaliser. And it's, it's from that you sort of think, OK, maybe there's something about the Chicago team um, because their, their trades or their transfers in the, the, the offseason really weren't bad at all. They got the likes of Janino, Dax McCarty. Basically, guys that have played in MLS and, and, and know what they're doing, um, which which helps them a lot. It sounds so obvious, but it really does help give them just a little bit of stability in the middle. And I think that's the the interesting thing now is working out whether Schweinsteiger can be consistent, because I think no one's really uh, questioned his technical ability. Even in the piece I wrote for the Guardian, I said his technical ability is still fantastic. And he showed that against Montreal. It wasn't just the goals. It was also uh, some really good passes as well that he put through. Um, just some, some world-class sort of through balls and things like that. So it, it's, it's not the issue there. The problem will come when they have to go to places like Houston, Texas. And it's, you know, baking, baking son and, and can he hold up there? It's, it's things like that that are, are the most important things to try and gauge. Mm. Promising start then for Basti. Long way to go in his quest to win the World Cup, of course, with Chicago Fire. Good bads. Um, guys, that brings an end to the Front Free Weekend Review. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, do get your reviews in on iTunes to be in for a chance of being the whole of the week on Thursday's podcast, as always. Until Thursday, though, Chris, 
Where can the listeners find more of your work? Uh, at K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E. And Statman Dave? www.tomnash.eu forward slash Gomez hyphen button dot HTML. Plenty of fun to be had there. Plenty of fun. Um, guys, you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Uh, you can also... Uh, is there any interesting stuff coming up? We've got some good stuff coming up on the, on Spencer's channel. Hashtag Academy stuff. Hashtag United stuff. It's all good fun. Go and check it out there. Until Thursday, have a great week and enjoy the midweek football. Atención. Atención. Spanische Hengst, den ich liebe, dein Temperament Mein Torero auf dem Fußballfeld Sehst noch ein Kopfball, der ist so nett Doch, lo que necesito Ist un golecito Mario, Mario, mach ihn rein Schießt uns endlich von Nummer 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, Jason. 